a man who, by his own admission, a man that, that was fervently going after the early church. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He grew up in the legalistic form of the Pharisees. And this idea that Jesus was the Messiah did not, could not, did not sit with him. And it angered him to the point where he was ravaging the church, it tells us in Acts chapter 8. By his own admission in Galatians chapter 1, this is what he said. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions, the traditions of Judaism that he had been brought up in. And again, all that Jesus said, that, again, fulfilling all of these things, he just, he couldn't, he couldn't accept that. And more zealous, he said, than even his contemporaries seeking out to destroy the church. Now, we've talked a little bit about Saul and his background. He was born in Tarsus. He was born to a very Jewish, a very um, devout Jewish family. Growing up in Tarsus, there was the heavy Greek Hellenistic culture that was around them, and he was still brought up in such a way that he, he followed Yahweh God. He loved, he loved the word. He loved the scripture. It tells us that a little bit about his family and how he was brought up. He records in Philippians chapter 3, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, growing up studying the law. Growing up in this, in, the, in this very Greek pagan culture, but being brought up by a devout family. He is Jewish, but he's also a Roman citizen. Somehow along the line, his, his family, probably his father, purchased the, his freedom as being a slave, purchased the citizenship of being a Roman, passed on to Paul by birth. Paul, by the way, just to clear this up, because I'm going to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Paul is his Greek name, Roman name. Saul is his Hebrew name. I mean, it's not that he got a new name. That's just his Hebrew name, Saul, his Greek name, Paul. So when I, whenever I say Saul, Paul, because I, I go back and forth, jump all over the place. So just let you know that. Saul, Paul, <laughs> when he was... About 13 years old, after some time, probably after his bar mitzvah, moved to Jerusalem to study under Rabbi Gamaliel. The, the Rabbi Gamaliel had like the highest esteemed school at the time to study rabbinically under him. It was a huge honor, and it wasn't just given to anyone. So small, Saul, very smart, very intelligent, a, a student of the law. And again, as we mentioned, he is out to destroy this early church, the followers of Jesus, referred to here in our scripture in, in verse 2 as the way. And I like that. And we're going to see as we look a little bit earlier, they're not called Christians yet. That, that, that term comes about later. Individuals were called disciples or students of this way that is taking place, the way. Jesus said himself. That there is a way to heaven, but it's narrow and few find it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and the, this, this whole movement following Jesus in that regard is saying, guys, there is a way. 
to be reconciled with our creator, to be reconciled with God. And that way is Jesus. And again, Saul is out to destroy this. He goes to the, the high priest. He gets letters of, of authorization to go to, to go to Damascus, to the synagogues that are there. And if he finds anybody that's following this way, he can bring them back bound to Jerusalem. Now, he's not satisfied with just rooting out this in Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus. That is 130 miles away, a six-day journey he is setting out on. And it tells us as we continue in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Luke recording for us here what took place. But Paul, later on in Acts, in two different occasions, will recount this story himself. And I want to look at those real quickly with you because there's a few details that we look at those together. It kind of fills in the story of this encounter that Saul has with the risen Lord Jesus. First is in Acts 22. Beginning in verse 6, Saul now addressing a, a, a group of Jewish people that had gathered around him, and he's giving a defense to them. Acts 22, verse 6 says, But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A couple of chapters later in Acts 26, Paul is now before King Agrippa and he again recounts what took place that day. Acts 26, beginning in verse 12, it says, While so engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand to your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you. Rescuing, from the, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So here we put these together and we have this picture. Paul, Saul, on his way to Damascus to arrest and bring back any that he might find that are followers of Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem. As he is approaching Damascus, this light from heaven shines before them. And he points it out that it is brighter than the noonday sun. It is the sun when it is at its highest point in the day and the brightest possible. And we get a little bit of a taste of that as we're going to head out after service just now. Every time I walk out, especially after second service and walk out from in here, out there, and how bright it is, and it's like, oh, man. And, and, and I know you do the same because all of you who come up and shake my hand like to stand in my shadow so that, you know, and how bright that is. As he's describing this, Saul himself says it was brighter than the noonday sun, this light that flashed in front of them. And it tells us that they all saw it. They all saw it, but Saul saw something that none of the rest did. He saw Jesus. It says in 1 Corinthians, he says two times in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to him. He saw Jesus. And the response to the light and the response to seeing Jesus, Saul, it says he falls to the ground. Falls, no doubt, face down on the ground. When Ken Graves did our men's retreat a couple years ago, I have this visual from, from that. He says he was doing gravel angels in the ground, just... probably just falling there just for sheer survival. But it's important that we understand a a few characteristics and aspects of this as we look at this. First of all, understand the holiness of God. Saul comes face to face with the holiness of Jesus and his response is to fall face down before him. So often that is so lost today in our relationship and our understanding about who God is. He is holy. He is righteous. He is perfect. He is so other than us. Just as Isaiah, the first first few chapters in Isaiah, he's talking to the people, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you. But it says when he saw a vision of heaven and God on his throne, he said, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. Even John, the disciple John, when he's on the island of Patmos and he's recording in Revelation, he writes it, he writes it when he saw Jesus in his glory, he fell face down before him as well. The holiness of God. But also notice as we look at, at this account here, the gentleness of God, the gentleness of the Lord Jesus. You might, when we, when we recount this, I don't know how, what kind of background you have, what kind of upbringing you have in the church. It might, it might say a lot about how you even view God, even still today, as to how you hear Jesus speaking to Saul. Do you hear him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That might sound a little over the top, but I know a lot of people who believe that's how God looks at them. How dare you? Because they were brought up in that way. I believe that the voice of Jesus was one that was full of emotion. Saul, 
Saul, why? Why are you persecuting me? Saul, Saul, repeating it twice. And that's in every account. No doubt every time he told the story, it was again with that heart. Just like Jesus as he's coming in at the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. He's riding in triumphal entry. He stops and he looks over Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. The heart, the emotion behind it. And the why, why are you persecuting me, he said. Not why are you persecuting my church. We see not only the emotion, but the empathy, the feeling that God has for you and I as his believers, you and I as his followers, you and I who have been redeemed by his blood. When we suffer persecution, when people say evil things about us, when, when we are harmed, he is harmed. When we are hurting, he is hurting. He feels it. He experiences it with us. And I'd be remiss if I didn't look at the other side of that coin real quickly. Guys, every time we speak ill of one another, every time we harbor bitterness or gossip or listen to gossip about someone else, we are doing that against Jesus. He says, I feel that. I feel those words. I feel the sting of that. So in that, we see the, the holiness of the Lord, the gentleness of the Lord. Isaiah also was the one who wrote, the broken reed he will not break off. The smoldering wick he will not extinguish. He saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. And then he responded to Jesus. He says, who, who are you, Lord? He, whoever it was, he said, I'm following you after all of this, whoever it is. And he says, I am Jesus, the one whom you're persecuting. His next response needs to be the response of all of us. What do you want from me? What is it you want me to do, Lord? <laughs> The only reasonable response after an encounter with the Lord. Well, he leaves this encounter blinded, humbled, but converted. Washed clean. They need to lead him by the hand to get to Damascus. He can't, he can't see where he's going. He, he gets to Damascus, all right, just totally different than the way he thought. It says that he spent three days blind, fasting imagine what was going through his mind imagine the thoughts and the emotions that he was going through during that period no doubt some remorse regret for the things that he had done and the things that he had been doing no doubt the the questions rolling through and and working through a lot of this stuff in his mind and in his heart but i guarantee you the overarching emotion and feeling was joy knowing for the first time understanding and embracing for the first time that his sins truly were forgiven that he truly was forgiven see that's the problem with any type of self-righteousness is we know deep down inside it's not enough 
anybody who's trying to earn their favor, earn favor with God, knows deep down inside it's not enough. Saul knew it wasn't enough. Saul knew in his heart of hearts. That's why Jesus said, what? you're kicking against the goads. You keep fighting against this. I've been showing you and showing you and showing you and revealing it to your heart, and you keep hardening your heart, Saul. And now that he's totally let go and he's released this, the joy that is there. By the way, just one last thing before we move off of, off of this. This is, again, Saul. The reason I've made a big deal about all that he was doing and all that he was before this is, guys... He was one bad dude. <laughs> and God touched him and forgave him and redeemed him and changed him. Don't ever give up on anyone. Anyone that you're praying for. You might think, man, they're so lost. There is no way. They're, <laughs> they're out of bounds. Nobody is out of bounds. Nobody is out of the reach of God's grace and his touch. Well, verse 10 tells us, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Again, proper response. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he said in a vision, a man named Ananias, a season of vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. We're introduced to a man named Ananias, again, a disciple, a follower of Jesus. And we see an exchange that takes place here. First of all, Jesus instructs Ananias, you are to go to this street called Straight, Straight Street, still in Damascus today, main street that cuts right through town. Go to Straight Street, go to Judas's house, and there... Saul of Tarsus is, and you're going to lay hands on him. Now, I, I, I think of that initially right off the bat. Jesus did not send Peter to do this work. Jesus didn't send John or one of the other apostles. He sent a man named Ananias, a disciple. If it wasn't for this transaction that takes place here today, in, in our story today, we'd probably never hear of Ananias. But God said, I have a special work for you to do, Ananias. And because he was listening... The Lord said, Ananias, he said, here I am. The Lord instructs him as to what he is to do. I find it interesting, the next thing that we see is Ananias informing Jesus of some information. <laughs> um, I, I hear what you're saying, but I don't think you understand all that you're asking me to do. This guy, Saul of Tarsus, he's the one that's been leading the persecution against the church. He's the one who's been overseeing the execution of, of some of your followers. I know you're really busy, so let me fill you in on a little bit more information. He's gotten letters from the chief priests to come and arrest us. He's got names. I'm probably on the list. I'd just as soon stay right here, hoping he doesn't find me. 
But I love the Lord again in this. It, Jesus doesn't rebuke Ananias. He enlightens him. <laughs> he said, Ananias, I know all of that. By the way, Saul right now is praying. P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, not P-R-E-Y-I-N-G. <laughs> he's praying. By the way, he's praying really for the first time in his life. He's, he's speaking to me right now, Ananias. I like that too. Saul's talking to Jesus. Jesus talking to Ananias. He's multitasking. <laughs> he's the greatest multitasker. He's never too busy for you. He's never too busy to hear from you. He says, come. All the time, come. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of prayer, says, prayer is the autograph of the Holy Ghost on the renewed heart. I love that. Again, it's this picture and understanding of this prayer now as Saul is speaking to the Lord. Jesus, again, telling Ananias, okay, don't, don't fear, just do what I say. I'm working, working on both ends of this thing. He said something interesting next to me that is, is something so important. We can't miss this. He said, he is a chosen instrument of mine. A chosen instrument of mine. First of all, of mine. There's ownership involved in that. And that's what happens when we make Jesus Lord of our life. He takes ownership then. We belong to him. We have been bought with a price. He is Lord. We follow and we serve him. Saul made that confession on the road. Who are you, Lord? And then what do you want me to do, Lord? You're in control. You're in charge of mine. But notice then it says chosen instrument. Chosen means exactly what it says. Chosen. Hand-picked by God. And that word instrument may be translated vessel. Same, same, same word, same meaning. Implement. Understand that back then, vessels, instruments, implements were not mass-produced on an assembly line. They were all handmade. They were all custom-made. You needed a pot for a certain specific use in your home. You went to the potter, and you described what you wanted, and they made it that way, and they formed it the way you want it, and they stuck it in the kiln, and then they gave it to you when it was done. You wanted a certain tool that was done a certain way. It was fashioned, handmade for you in that. Guys, he was a chosen instrument of the Lord Jesus, handpicked and handcrafted, uniquely qualified to do exactly what it was that Jesus had handpicked him to do. We talked about that at the beginning, and now we can see the importance of it. He's Jewish, so he has access certain places that non-Jews don't. He's Roman also, so he has access to places that Jews do not. He's highly educated. 
So he has access to people and different things that other people do not. He has been hand-selected by God, handcrafted. God's been working Saul's whole life for this. It didn't start on the road to Damascus. It started at the beginning of Saul. As a matter of fact, Saul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 1. But when God, who set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Chosen, set apart from my mother's womb. God has been working Saul's whole life to get him ready for this. Guys, as believers, every single one of us in this room are chosen instruments of his. If you're a believer here in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a chosen instrument of his. Again, by the way, if you've made him Lord of your life, that means he's in control. And he has hand-selected you and handcrafted you for a specific ministry, for a specific purpose. You have access to people that others don't. You have access to avenues and, and ways that other people do not. You are uniquely qualified for the ministry that God has called you to. It tells us in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Chosen instruments of his. He does say, verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. There was suffering that was going to be involved in Paul's ministry. He summarizes it in a few verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with, with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is also the daily pressure on me concerning the churches. <laughs> and Jesus showed him that was going to happen ahead of time. How many of you are glad he doesn't do that with you? I am. I'm really glad. <laughs> but... There is suffering. There is tribulation. You don't have to look hard today to find a church that will tell you that's not true, though. You can, find, you can turn on the TV when you get home, and somebody will tell you, man, if you just trust Jesus and you pray the right way, you're going to be rich and healthy, and you're never going to have another problem as long as you live. Problem is, that's not what the Bible says, and that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But he followed that up and said, but take courage because I've overcome the world. <laughs> Guys, there is difficulty and trial in the lives that we have. Paul will write in, in Philippians, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake 
not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. We can, we can look at our lives and the difficulties and the things that come up and, and we can easily say and get, and especially no matter if the, if the trial gets really difficult and really hard, we can say, Lord, this isn't what I signed up for. But let me let you in on something. When you made Jesus Lord of your life, you signed a blank contract. He fills in all of the details. He's Lord. He's in charge. But he also signed the contract. He signed it with his own blood. And you know the other part that's blank on that contract is the record of our sin. But he's in charge. He's in control. And the part of becoming a vessel, it's difficult. I mean, you, you, if you're going to make a sword, again, back then, it's you take a piece of steel and you heat it up and you start hammering on it and hammering on it and hammering on it and then you heat it up some more and hammer on it some more and hammer on it some more. I don't want to be a sword. I'll be a pot. I'll just be a pot. I'm fine with being a pot. Again, Take a lump of clay and you start hammering on it and hammering on it and hammering on it and then you stick it in the kiln. <laughs> but it's all part of making us chosen vessels, chosen instruments. That list that we just went through of Paul's, the things that he will suffer for the sake of the gospel, that's quite a list. Paul is one tough dude. So let me tell you, if he's asking God, begging, pleading God three times for God to remove something from his life, it has to be bad, really bad. And we don't know what it is, but he did. He went to the Lord and it said that he asked three times that the Lord would remove something from him. We don't know what it is, but we know it's got to be bad. Listen to the response, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He, says, he said, and then he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with my weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. He asked that it be removed and then rejoices when Jesus said no. Because Jesus said, my grace is sufficient, and Paul believed him. He trusted in the fact that God's grace will get him through whatever it is that comes his way. Jesus promises his grace. He promises peace, power, and above all of that, he promises his presence. Going through whatever it is that we go through. He says, my grace is sufficient. Paul will say later, Acts 20, verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we, we have this, now this is being set up 
Ananias discussing this with the Lord, kind of going back a little bit, but Jesus says, go. This is what's going on, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. I love this again as we look at this picture. Ananias, not Paul, not, I'm sorry, not Peter, not John, not one of the apostles. Ananias is sent to go and to lay hands on Saul. To, to lay hands on the one who came to lay hands on him <laughs> in a different way. And I want to challenge you all with that because we get from time to time, we get, we get prayer requests and we get, we'll get emails and phone calls into the office that ask us as pastors and elders to go and to pray with someone in the hospital. And by the way, please, if you know of someone who's going to be in the hospital or if you're going to be in the hospital or if you need somebody to come and pray with you or know somebody that needs prayer, please contact the office. So often we find out about things after the fact. We'd love to come and pray with you. But after you send us an email about somebody else being in the hospital, get in your car and go to the hospital yourself and pray with that person. You go into the room too. And you go and be a comfort. And you go and lay hands on them and pray for them. Let me let you in on a little something. Your prayer is just as powerful as my prayer. The same Holy Spirit that is in you is in me. We are all called to be ministers together in that regard. And I love that. Again, here's Ananias, a guy we'd have probably never heard of if it wasn't for this story. He's the one that God called and chose to go do that. And he walks in, and can you imagine the touch that Saul got at that point? Because he knows he's coming. The Lord told him and showed him that a man named Ananias was coming. So he feels the touch, and then he hears these words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Not just Saul. <laughs> Brother Saul. With that, the grace and forgiveness now being extended from Ananias to this man. This man who was hunting him. Hunting them. No doubt responsible for even some of his friends being thrown in jail and maybe even being executed. But now, because of the grace of the Lord Jesus, a believer and a, and a, and a, and a brother, brother Saul. Guys, we can never lose sight of the fact that we are all saved by grace. None of us needed less grace. It's, we, we all stand together on equal ground. Just like I said, Isaiah before, woe is you, woe is you, woe is you, until before the Lord, then it's woe is me. We are all saved by grace. And we have to be careful that we don't judge or look down on someone or somehow feel superior to anyone because of their past, because of what they've been through in the past, all that God rescued them out of. At least I wasn't like that, or I wasn't involved in that before. No, we rejoice, and we are all redeemed before the Lord together. I got this picture sent to me a couple of months ago 
from Ray in New Jersey, Pastor Ray. Pastor Ray there on the right. And I don't know if many of you recognize who's immediately to his right, but that's Brother David. And if you, if you, if you raised your hand earlier that you know what a hashtag is and how it works, you probably don't know this man. <laughs> Brother David, um, you probably know him more from, famously by his last name, Berkowitz. David Berkowitz, the son of Sam's serial killer from the 1970s. The one who terrorized a city so much that every woman with blonde hair, because that's who he targeted, was going out and buying hair dye to dye their hair. They ran out of hair dye. Terrorizing a city so much, the, the number of murders that he committed. But let me repeat to you, that's brother David because he's a born-again believer. He's given his life to Jesus. As a matter of fact, he's got a, he's got a discipleship ministry in prison. He heard Pastor Ray on the radio and asked if he would come and visit him, and he, he went and he saw him, spent a couple hours with him. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Again, no one is outside of the reach. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. So much grace. Paul will again, I mentioned this last week, he will use the term grace 120 times in his epistles. Grace, grace, grace. Well, it tells us as we continue, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed and we're saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Immediately, he gets up, he's proclaiming Jesus. All of those, it says, who saw him were amazed. And why wouldn't they be? They knew the Saul before. They had heard about him, they'd seen him, and now here's this totally different man before them, amazed as the total transformation has taken place. He's confounding them. He's proving to them, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Proved means to present or to bring to a logical conclusion. But don't misunderstand what I said earlier about the fact that he's highly educated. He wasn't using his education. He wasn't wowing them with his intelligence. It wasn't through persuasive arguments or brilliant rhetoric that he was leading them to know that this is the Christ. No, it was through, through his sharing of the truth and the witnessing of his changed life. Paul himself, again, in his own words, will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Guys, the power, the power, the complete power is in the blood of Jesus. The power in the story is the story of the cross. That is the power it's not in eloquence. It's not in brilliant rhetoric. It's sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then living it out in front of people. He goes on, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, 
but on the power of God. Blowing them away by what they are seeing and witnessing. Verse 23, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul, and they were, they were also watching the gates day and night that he, they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. It says, when many days had elapsed, when we piece together other information that we have in Galatians and 1 Corinthians and later on in the book of Acts, we know that when many days, that was actually a period of three years. It tells us at the, at the end of verse 19, he was there for several days with the disciples in Damascus. But in Galatians chapter 1, it tells us that from there he went away to Arabia for a period of time and then returned to Damascus. In 2 Corinthians, it tells us that he returned to Damascus from Arabia, but there was a, a, an entourage following him, a detachment of soldiers to arrest him because of all the turbulence that he'd called, caused bringing the gospel in Arabia. The king sent to have him arrested and brought back to Arabia. He's, he's stirring it up wherever he's going. Tells us that there was a plot then to kill him, and they set it up all around Damascus to catch him. So they lower him down out of a, in a basket to escape by night. He leaves Damascus not like he planned either. Verse twenty-six: When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Again, in Galatians, we get the information that he went to Jerusalem. He wanted to meet Peter. He wanted to associate with Peter. We know also from Galatians that the only ones that were still there at the time of the leadership within the church were Peter and James, Jesus' brother. The rest had, were, were out. Those were the two that, that Saul got to know at the time there. It says that they were originally, that he was originally, they were like, they didn't believe that he was that he was truly converted, that he was probably some undercover agent for what's going on. They didn't believe that he had truly had this experience. But then I love it. But Barnabas. We were introduced to Barnabas before. We're told that the Barnabas was a nickname that they gave him, a name that they called him, and it means son of encouragement. One that is encouraging, one that is reconciling, one that is saying, hey, guys, you gotta, you got you to gotta believe me on this. It, this. He's the real deal. Eventually... They embrace him. Can you imagine the conversation that Peter and Saul must have had as they were spending those days together? Again, we, we know that he was there for 15 days, it tells us elsewhere in Scripture. 15 days hanging out, Peter and Saul, and no doubt Peter taking him on a tour of where certain things happened. And he's, tell me about this, and tell me about that. And Peter telling him, and he gets to, the, to maybe taking him to the Garden of Gethsemane saying, yeah, this is where he brought us. And he told us, he told us to wait right, right here, right where we're standing right now, right here, and, and to, to pray. And then he went on just a little bit further. Yeah, 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 this is where I fell asleep. But, but it was right over there that 
Jesus was praying. Hmm. It says that he went to the synagogue. He was debating with the Hellenistic Jews. If you'll remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that. He was probably highly respected in that synagogue at one time because of his background. And now here, they want him dead. In Acts 22, Saul explains that Jesus actually told him to leave Jerusalem at this time because he warned him that they wouldn't accept his testimony at this time. So he flees Jerusalem. They send him. They want to kill him there now too. So they send him eventually en route through Caesarea back to his hometown in Tarsus. And he will spend the better part of eight years in Tarsus. We're not going to hear from him again for eight years. Now, that's only a couple of chapters in Acts, but he kind of disappears from the scene, but not off of God's radar. God continues to mold him and to shape him and to pour into him and making him that chosen instrument that he is going to use to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We see here again this man, Saul, a man who pretty much had everything. When he was growing up, this is exactly what his parents wanted him to be. He had reached about the pinnacle that you could reach as, he, as where he was going, the Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had money, he had fame, he was well-known and well-respected everywhere. But he would later write, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead." Saul thought he had it all, but he knew that there was still something missing. He knew that all of his self-righteousness didn't amount to enough. And if you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you've never trusted in him and him alone for your salvation, you might be thinking that you can somehow just balance the scales enough to offset the sin in your life with good things in your life and that God will have to, have to embrace that and accept that someday. The problem is that's not true. The problem is there's no good that we can do to offset the sin in our life. We have way too low of, a, of an estimation of to what sin is and way too low of an estimation of the holiness of God. Guys, there's nothing we can do to make up for our sin. And God knows that. That's why he sent his son. Jesus stepped out of heaven. That, that step of condescension to become one of us, we will never understand. But he did it. He became one of us. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. Because it took a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And he willingly gave his life in exchange for ours. His blood poured out to wash away our sin. And if you've never accepted that gift this morning, I would ask that you, I would plead with you that you would. That you would surrender as Saul did that day on the road to Damascus. And get the joy 
that can be yours today, knowing that your sin is completely forgiven, knowing that when you die, you will go to be with Jesus forever in heaven because the debt is fully paid, you can have peace today that you've never experienced. And you might be saying, well, you don't have any idea the life I've lived. The debt of sin that I owe couldn't possibly be covered by, by grace, couldn't possibly be as explained away like you're, you're saying. Let me tell you again, based on the testimony of Brother Saul and Brother David, the Lord knows every one of your sins, and he took them all to the cross. He loved you so much that he died in your place, and you simply need to receive that gift. I want to give you that invitation to do that today. Would you, would you please stand? Would you please pray with me? If that is you right now, you simply go before the Lord in your heart and you say, God, I know that I am a sinner and I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of kicking against the goads. I know my life is not pleasing to you and I know no matter how much of my own self-righteousness I can muster up, it's not enough. I need a perfect substitute. And Jesus, I believe that you are that one. I believe that you died for me, that you took my place, you took my punishment. So right now, I ask that you would come into my heart, come into my life, forgive me of all of my sins. I want to make you Lord of my life right now. I want to sign the blank contract because I know as you sign it, it wipes away all of my sin. Come into my life now. Forgive me. Give me your righteousness. Lord Jesus, we thank you for that work, that redemptive work that you've done in each of us. Lord, we thank you for the grace that is sufficient to cover all of our sin. But Lord, we also thank you for the grace that is sufficient to get us through anything, regardless of where we are right now. Whatever we're dealing with, whatever suffering, whatever trial, Lord, we do ask that you would remove those things that are in your will to remove, but those things, Lord, that you would will for us to go through as you are continuing to mold us into your chosen instruments. Lord, that we would find great joy in your promise of grace. Lord, we look at Saul and Ananias and Barnabas, and Lord, we, can, we see what you can and will do with those who willingly surrender to the work that you desire to do. So Lord, we, we humbly and willingly